Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. George Santos is a liar. He fabricated his qualifications, his background, lied to the FEC, and unemployment fraud. He has manufactured his entire life. He blatantly stole from his campaign. He can defend himself in a court of law, but for the purposes of this body, he's got to go. And go he did, becoming just the sixth member of Congress to be expelled from that once august legislative body and further narrowing Republicans' already meager majority. Plus, bombing and fighting resumes in Gaza as the temporary truce expires amid new revelations about when Israel learned about a potential October 7 attack. And Governors Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom duke it out in a live debate as we learn more about the scandalous allegations swirling around Florida Republican chair and Moms for Liberty co-founder Christian Ziegler. And we begin tonight with an historic day on Capitol Hill, the infamous kind. Prior to today, only five House members have ever been expelled all in cases of criminality or disloyalty, a.k.a. treason. Three House members were expelled in 1861 for disloyalty to the Union. John Bullock Clark and William Reed of Missouri, no relation to my knowledge, hashtag slavery. And Henry Cornelius Burnett of Kentucky, all served in the Confederate Army. In 1980, Pennsylvania Congressman Michael Myers, no relation to the spooky character, to my knowledge, was given the boot after he was caught taking bribes in the FBI's abscam sting. And in 2002, Ohio Congressman James James Traficant was expelled after his conviction on 10 corruption-related counts, bribery, racketeering, and tax evasion. Today, for his litany of illegal and unethical behavior, George Anthony DeValder Quitara Ravash Santos joined that infamous club, becoming just the sixth House member to be expelled in the history of the United States Congress. After 11 months of drama, the House finally said goodbye and good riddance to the serial fabulist. True to form, he was defiant to the bitter end, although he tried to appear zen-like about the losing his job thing this morning. I've accepted the fate. Look, I, I, I believe that if it's God's will to keep me here, I will stay. And if it is will, if it is his will for me to leave, I will leave and I will do so graciously. Yeah, except he really didn't do that. During debate on his expulsion yesterday, he basically dared his colleagues to oust him. And clearly expecting the result today, he wore his coat on the floor as the vote happened. 105 Republicans joined nearly all Democrats in sending him packing. The vote was 311 to 114. Leaving the Capitol afterwards, he told reporters he no longer had to answer questions since he's not a member. Adding, to hell with this place, when asked if he planned on visiting the House floor as a now former member. George Anthony DeValder Santos has always been a, shall we say, unique figure, and not just because his entire biography unraveled after he was elected, even though a local Long Island newspaper tried to sound the alarm. 
Before he was sworn in, it emerged he'd lied about his education, his resume, his mother possibly dying in the Twin Towers on September 11th or being there at all, his supposed Jewish heritage and about being the grandson of Holocaust survivors. Despite all of that, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy welcomed Santos because one vote really matters when your majority is five votes and you're Kevin McCarthy and don't know what to do with it. Santos' expulsion is also unique since he hasn't been convicted of his alleged crimes yet. He faces trial next fall on federal charges of money laundering, theft of public funds, and identity theft. Although Santos has accepted responsibility for stealing checks in Brazil in a deal to have the charges there dropped. Prior to today, he'd survived two votes to expel him, but his days seemed numbered. He said he wouldn't run for re-election after the House Ethics Committee released a scathing report, citing overwhelming evidence of his lawlessness. That included additional crimes they referred to the Department of Justice, falsely reporting loans received by his political action committee, and using campaign funds for totally reasonable stuff like Ferragamo shoes, Botox, trips to the Hamptons, Atlantic City casinos, a honeymoon in Las Vegas, and uh, OnlyFans payments in cash. George Santos will now likely have a harder time coming up with legitimate money to cover his champagne lifestyle. He'll no longer receive his $174,000 salary as a member of Congress or a congressional pension since you have to serve five years to qualify. Adding insult to injury, office staff have already changed the locks at his congressional office and taken down his name. It will remain the office of the 3rd Congressional District of New York until his successor is elected. While this particular avatar of Republican Party lies and corruption may be gone, the rot goes all the way to the core. George Santos' entire political ethos, lying, performative performative outrage and self-victimization, is nothing more than a Cliffsnose version of the Republicans' dear leader, Donald Trump. Except, as George Santos' expulsion proves, Donald Trump may have changed the rules. But getting away with crime seems to only apply to him. I'm joined now by Harry Littman, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General, legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and host of the Talking Feds podcast, and Rick Wilson, former Republican strategist and co-founder of the Lincoln Project. And Rick Wilson, I have literally been waiting all day with bated (laughs) breath and much excitement to hear what you, my friend, have to say about George Santos' expulsion. So please, please, please tell us what you think. (laughs) Thank you for having me on today because I've been watching the George Santos thing. The uppance has finally come for this guy. (laughs) This is probably one of the most egregious, weird, skell scumbags that has ever graced the halls of Congress, including that one guy from the Civil War you showed with the giant facial hair thing. But this is this is a truly strange guy who only could be elected in the Donald Trump era's Republican Party. You know, there used to be a function in the Republican Party where like the county chairman would say to the national committee, like, hey, that guy is running. He's kind of a weirdo. You don't want to you don't want that guy in there. But now they the, the process and the incentives are are built to put the weirdos and the criminals in the top of the food chain as long as they're hot players on on Trump's radar and as long as they're good on social media and as long as they play the Fox game, none of it seems to matter. It's really remarkable that this – it finally caught up with this guy even though it was obvious from the very beginning there were some things profoundly wrong with this dude. Like from the very start, from the jump, you could tell that this guy was going to end up you know, I, I'm surprised he didn't end up with a with a sniper rifle and a clock tower. He's mad, and 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 the and the criminality was rolling off this guy in waves. 
really a remarkable figure for our time. And he didn't even have a fun, saucy mustache, which uh, probably might have helped him. Uh, right. Harry Littman, there, there is a sense in which, you know, we, we laugh about Kitaro Rivash uh, Santos, but there is a sense that his just brazen lawlessness, the fact that he thought he could take the campaign money he raised from donors and spend it on OnlyFans, that really, in my mind, can only resist as some, uh, exist in the world where Donald Trump gets away with so much crime that people who are in his party and in his milieu believe, well, that's the way it works. It isn't mm-hmm. the way it works for anyone except Donald Trump. But just for you as a former prosecutor, does it feel to you like the four years we spent watching Donald Trump literally earn money off of a hotel he was leasing from the federal government, which is supposed to not be allowed, and just brazenly violate the law and manipulate the Justice Department to help his friends and hurt his enemies? That sense of lawlessness to me translates and transfers. What do you think as a former process, as a former prosecutor? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean— that's why they call him the Rick Wilson. And I don't want to follow him on the politics. But first, there is this screaming irony that the party is overall, you know, embracing and redoubling in its embrace at every brazen um, disclosure of Trump. And yet there was something I think I think uh, actually Rick has a point about there was something strange about the guy. And in almost sort of junior high terms, he was someone you could kick when you'd be scared of Trump, the bully. But I just want to make two quick legal points, not 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 mm-hmm. having any desire to duke it out with Rick on the politics. <laughs> First point is there were some interesting uh, people voting no, saying this sets a bad um, example because he hasn't been convicted. And what uh, the House decided to do today is go with their own ethics committee, because whether or not he'd been convicted in a court of law, it was a scathing ethics committee report, unanimous. And I think it mattered that the motion to expel was brought by the chair of that committee, a Republican. Second legal yeah. point. Wow, is George Santos in a world of hurt criminally. I think he was holding yeah. on by his fingernails a, for the salary, I mean, he doesn't seem to have a dime, and and yeah. B, for some kind of leverage of that position. He now can't afford a trial where the charges are going to get worse and where even if he could pay for a defense, he would be convicted in 90 minutes. So I really think he's looking at a straight um, path to a plea bargain here. And that's what really he had in mind and why the worst for George Santos actually has yet to come. Yeah, you're right, because my understanding is he'd be better off trying to get a plea deal while he's in office because they could say, if you leave office, then maybe you would get a lighter sentence. That's give you my right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think he'd prosper in prison. Uh, he could probably make entertain everyone and maybe that will make everybody <laughs> like him very much. Um, I, you know, I, I have to do something uh, that I normally wouldn't do uh, because this guy is for lynching. So I would normally not play a soundbite of Chip Roy. I am not a huge fan of him as a politician, but he, you know, broken clocks and all. He did say something that I think is actually true and resonant, particularly for you, Rick Wilson, as a former Republican strategist. Let me play Chip Roy. Here he is. I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one that I can go campaign on and say we did. One. Anybody sitting in the complex, if you want to come down to the floor and come explain to me one material, meaningful, significant thing the Republican majority has done besides, well, I guess it's not as bad as the Democrats. (laughs) Rick Wilson, can you answer his question? 
No, because there is no answer to it. Right now, what you're seeing is the people like Chip Roy and the people like Matt Gates and the people like Lauren Boebert and all the other crazies, Paul Gosar, et cetera. They're turning now on Mike Johnson, who is insufficiently crazy for their caucus. Just process that for a moment where you have to say to yourself, Mike Johnson's not extreme enough. Those words are it's hard to make those words come out of your mouth because Mike Johnson is the is the furthest right uh, bizarro world Republican you could imagine. And now and they're complaining he's not doing what they want, which is to burn down Washington. What Chip is asking for is the government to be shut down. He's asking for draconian cuts. He's asking for the the sort of like Mad Max scenario where the living envy the dead and the world is in chaos because that's what they want. And he's disappointed by this. You know, at most he gets to go home and say, Hey, we sent uh, Katana Ravash back, you know, to wherever he came from. But this is a guy who rep- Chip represents a really broken brained part of the Republican party that believes the chaos and the destruction and the economic crisis that they could create in the house isn't being handed to them on a silver platter. And if you're part of a party that wants that all the time. If you're part of a party that needs that, 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 that's chasing the dragon of chaos and disruption and economic crisis, you're not really in a party. You're in a cult. And that's what, and that's why he and so many others are disappointed. And again, when Mike Johnson is the guy <laughs> in closer to the center than most of the caucus, you know you're in a really alternate universe. Yeah, because he wants the Handmaid's Tale. So that's that, that's oh, yeah. really frightening. Oh, I, mean, yeah. oh. I mean, the re, the, re, the reality is, Harry, you know, and we're, I'm not going to ask you to, co- to comment on the politics because everything they yeah. do is just because of Trump. They don't like Ukraine because Trump doesn't like Ukraine. So they don't want to fund it. They, you know, they want to mm-hmm. go after all these prosecutors because Trump doesn't like them and he's mad at them. So they want to they're, they're literally just for him. So l- let's talk about him because he's the reason they do everything they do, the Republicans. This argument that's being made, a federal appeals court has said Trump cannot get presidential immunity. No, on his January 6th civil cases. No, he he still has to serve. He still has to meet them. But I want to let you listen to a guy named Steve Sato. He is Donald Trump's lawyer. And he's arguing that in the case of the Fulton County prosecution for the January 6th insurrection, Trump cannot be prosecuted right before the election because he's running for president. But if he became president, he also cannot be prosecuted. Take a listen. Can you imagine the notion of the Republican nominee for president not being able to campaign for the presidency because he is in some form or fashion in a courtroom defending himself? That would be the most effective election interference for the United States. If your client does uh, win election in 2024, uh, could he even be tried in 2025? The answer to that is, I believe that under the supremacy clause and his duties as President of the United States, this trial would not take place at all until after he left the term of office. Heads, heads, you win. Tails, we lose. I mean, heads, you, heads, I win. Tails, you lose. Right? They're essentially saying he can't be prosecuted at all, ever. Exactly what they're saying, and that's just the phrase I had in mind. And it, McAfee's a smart guy, and I think he was he was looking at the heads part very carefully. One thing he asked today that was telling: What if uh, there is a change in the federal court schedule? Say, Eileen Cannon, as he had in mind, how long would it take you prosecution to get up to speed? 
30 days. Um, and he also said, you prosecution can choose your first group if there's more than one. Why does that matter? Because, yes, it would be a kind of election interference, but you also call him a criminal defendant with grave charges against him. That's what follows from it. The other point he's making, Joy, I'm actually here to tell you, has some oomph in it. Were he elected president, I think it's very possible the Supreme Court would say, you better put this trial on ice for now. Meaning, if McAfee is thinking about it, there's all the more reason to try to do this trial before. There's no constitutional impediment, a little inconvenient, but he seems to love it, actually, for him being a criminal defendant while he's running for president. But there would be after. So it really means it's all the more important and exigent to get a trial in this one or January 6th trial before Judge Chutkin in advance of the election. Because it's clear that if he becomes president, he's not going to leave. He's not. He's just going to be president until, you know, nature uh, takes its course. I mean, th this is clear. Well, we, he you know, we've heard. We know, for example, what he'll do to the DOJ, what he'll do to right. the country, what he'll do to the Constitution. So would that exactly. he would just hamburgers and stay and, and leave us alone. That will not happen. No, it will not happen. Let, let me go to the other the other president. Uh, his name is Joe Biden. Uh, and there is an attempt, uh, Rick Wilson, to try to give him the same uh, asterisks that Trump has, because, again, they only do things because of Trump. And so the asterisk they want to give him is impeachment. The, the gentleman who's leading this is a guy named James Comer. Poor James Comer. They'll never call him the James Comer because he seems to have gotten so played by Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's lawyer, because Hunter Biden's lawyer said, yeah, yeah, let, let's go ahead. Let's do go do the subpoena in public. And then Comer said, oh, no, we can't do that. We don't want to have that. What is the purpose at this point of the impeachment if they've got no witnesses and they can't even bring themselves to question their supposed star prosecution witness in public? Look, I think in, to, to begin, we should be thankful James Comer is running this investigation because James Comer is a man clearly who is easily overcome by inanimate objects. This is clearly a guy who would lose a debate to a toaster oven. I, I have I have old pairs of Crocs that are smarter than James Comer. This is a guy who really is not a bright man. Now, with all that, he still has a staff of attorneys behind him, and they have this, this idea of lawfare against Joe Biden. However, their case is based on such a tenuous skein of lies, BS, garbage, fake you know, laptop stories, the entire thing falls apart with even the most cursory ex exposure to truth. And so they're going to end up with this thing that they thought was going to be their Benghazi. They were going to get him in the chair like they got Hillary for days on end. And they were going to have this rolling set of coverage. Even Fox News seems vaguely embarrassed by James Comer. Maybe not even vaguely, maybe profoundly embarrassed. Th this is a an impeachment in search of a fact base and there is none to be had. Um, and it's always projection, Joy. These people, when they say someone is a criminal, it's because they're cr they're criming. If they say someone is a is a is is corrupt, it's because they're corrupt. And they're projecting this back all of Donald Trump sends back on Joe Biden to try to muddy the water. It's not working. And the fact that they have a guy who's spearheading this who is probably about uh, about as capable of understanding complex multivariate legal problems as I am of understanding quantum physics is a real benefit to the president right now. I mean, literally, when they say Joe Biden lent his son money or lent his brother money, James Comer literally lent his brother 
an equal amount of it's money. Astoundingly <laughs> it, uh, it's so embarrassing. Harry Littman and the Rick Wilson. Thank One you very both. point seconds. Of all the big developments, <laughs> the immunity, the immunity opinion today is huge. Very important for Jack yes. Smith. Just want to get that in. Thank you for getting that in. The, 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 the Harry Lipman got that in. Thank you, my friend. And up next on The Readout, stunning new reporting reveals exactly when Israeli officials learned about Hamas's plans to carry out their attack inside Israel and why that intelligence was apparently ignored. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The fragile humanitarian pause between Israel and Hamas collapsed today after negotiations reached an impasse. Publicly, Israel and Hamas blamed each other for military activity that violated the week-long pause. The Israeli military has now urged residents in parts of southern Gaza to evacuate, signaling that a broader assault is coming. It's not clear where Gaza residents in the south would evacuate to. A total of 178 Palestinians have been killed and 589 injured in Gaza since the resumption of hostilities today, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. The Health Ministry also says the IDF is targeting Al-Adwa Al-Auda Hospital and is calling for UN protection. The fighting resumed after a bombshell report that Israel knew of the Hamas attack plan more than a year ago. A blueprint reviewed by the New York Times laid out the attack in detail But Israeli officials dismissed it as aspirational and ignored specific warnings. Joining me now is journalist and foreign policy expert Rula Jabril. And Rula, this was a stunning uh, piece of journalism. Uh, And just for a little bit, this 40-page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, described a a methodical assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around the Gaza Strip, check, take over Israeli cities and storm key military bases, which actually happened as well, including a division headquarters. They hit the military base. They went to civilian areas, took hostages. It's all in this this report that was a year old, your take on how and why it could have been ignored? Well, this goes back to Bibi Netanyahu's governing philosophy. For 30 years, he told Israelis that he's the only one can keep them safe. He's the only one that can thwart, prevent the establishment of Palestinian state. And he's the only one that can control the Americans. He keep reiterating those things until last week, I believe. And the central part, I can prevent a Palestinian state by basically, and this is the most important element, by strengthening Hamas and delegitimizing, discrediting the Palestinian Authority. I mean, 10 years ago, when he started negotiating with Hamas and lobbying Gulf state to finance Hamas, he released 
the head of Hamas today in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar. Yahya Sinwar is the architect of this attack. He was in Israeli jail, not because he killed Israelis, but because he killed Palestinians. He thought that Hamas did not represent uh, a military threat anymore. And thus, he took from Gaza all the a lot of units and took them back to the West Bank, undermining the security of the border, took them to the West Bank because his ultimate goal was annexation of the Palestinian territories. It goes back to his governing philosophy. A lot of Israelis like myself, citizens, feel betrayed by this government. All of his life, he told us that he could keep Israelis safe and under his watch, the worst terrorist attack took place. And now he's doubling down on the same policies that produced nothing but death and destruction. Yeah, the death toll is now over 14,000. And then if you count the additional deaths uh, from the bombing that has resumed, this is one thing that I don't understand. What we have seen actually proved is that when the bombing stops, Israeli hostages and other hostages from around the world, from Thailand and others, go free. When the bombing is happening, none of that happens at all. Let me play for you Udi Gorin, whose cousin was kidnapped after attempting to fight um, Hamas. Uh, militants came into his kibbutz. MSNB, his, his cousin is still missing. Here's what he had to say today about the resumption of bombing. We are operating under the assumption that we are running out of time. You've just covered the, the renewed assault on southern Gaza. This is yeah. probably where my cousin is. This is where mm -hmm. his phone was traced to. We know that the Israeli airstrikes are hurting the hostages. And now it's even more dense. It, it, it's, it's impossible. What would be the reason to resume bombing when it doesn't help get hostages out, it's hurting Israel's and the United States' reputation, and it isn't an effective way to do anything other than kill a lot of people, including children? Well, Bibi Netanyahu understand that his political life, his survival, his political survival depend on what's happening with the war. Once the music ends, his political life is over. Uh, Israelis, I believe, only 4% trust him. At this point, only 4%. And what's keeping him alive is the global unconditional support, especially of the West. When President Biden, the bear hug, uh, continued to deliver weapons without any condition, this actually emboldened these extremists in the government. I believe that Bibi Netanyahu and his far-right government will not stop in Gaza. They've been pointing to say, they've been saying that the West Bank, there's 2 million terrorists and 2 million Nazis who are being living in the West Bank. They're now creating a doctrine that is so dangerous to Israelis, Palestinians, to the Americans, everywhere. And the doctrine is the following, that Palestinians, all of them, somehow they are either terrorists or terrorist sympathizers or human shields, and thus they are a legitimate target anywhere. They're looking at the northern you know, border in Lebanon saying, well, we will go also to Lebanon because Lebanon has Hezbollah and thus it's a threat. So the West, instead of putting conditions, clear condition to what Israel, the, to comply with international law or American law, they're giving them a green light to continue uh, dismantling Palestinians in Gaza. Today, According to Israel Hayom, a main newspaper in Israel, their ultimate goal is to thinning out the population in Gaza, meaning we need to push them out of the country and bomb them and create. They've been even pinning up at saying we will use further weapons like 
you know, food and water to create a pandemic so we can kill, you know, create a mass mass killing and, and kill them either directly and indirectly. I mean, this is ethnic cleansing. And the fact that President Biden and the administration is aiding and abetting Bibi Netanyahu, who is Donald Trump of Israel, and then not realizing that this is so dangerous for the United States yeah. is astonishing. Joy, one last thing, and, and this is really, if you look at the global South and how the global yeah. South is reacting, we are in uncharted territories. This will enable extremists. We're already having yeah. extremists in Israel, in the government, mm -hmm. saying we cannot survive and we cannot be safe, and this is a nuclear right. state, with the presence of the Palestinians. The next wow. person um, or the next terrorist or tyrant who will use this will be somebody else yeah. who will point out to President Biden backing of Bibi Netanyahu say, if right. Israel did it, we're allowed to do it. Uh, Rula Jabril, I wish we had more time. Uh, scary stuff, but I think important information. Rula Jabril, thank you very much. And coming up next, today is World AIDS Day, a reminder of those we've lost and a commitment to fighting both the disease and the stigma surrounding it. I'll be joined by esteemed actress and activist Debbie Allen when we come back. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is, is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it. Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Today is World AIDS Day, a global movement to unite people in the fight against HIV and AIDS. World AIDS Day was first declared by the World Health Organization in 1988, the year at least 10,000 people died of AIDS in the United States. Tens of millions of people have died of AIDS-related causes since the beginning of the epidemic. The HIV landscape looks a lot different now than it did in the 1980s, but the fight is far from over. In 2022, 39 million people globally were living with HIV, and 1.3 million people were newly diagnosed, which is why the people and organizations on the front lines of fighting HIV-AIDS say there is still so much more work to be done. And joining me now is Emmy, Grammy, and Golden Globe-winning choreographer, director, and producer, the great and glorious Debbie Allen. She is also an HIV-AIDS awareness activist and will be speaking tonight at the nation's largest World AIDS Day commemoration, which is a concert in Houston. I'm so jealous I'm not going to be there. Featuring the one and only Janet Jackson. I'm so jealous, and I'm so honored to talk to you. This is why I love my job. I get to meet amazing people like you. Debbie Allen, welcome. Thank you so much. You're so beautiful and you have so much joy as you should. <laughs> oh, my. 
Well, tell me about this amazing event. I, again, definitely wish I could be there, but please tell us why, uh, why is it happening? What is going to happen? Uh, who's going to be a part of it? Give us all the details. Well, AIDS Healthcare Foundation has become the world's largest and leading AIDS uh, organization, nonprofit. It started out as a, a group of friends that were trying to create hospice and help their friends die in a very respectful, dignified way. And now it is the leader. And Michael Weinstein, who is the CEO and president, has made this a commitment to bring awareness so people don't forget. Sometimes people think the battle is over because now it's not a death sentence like it was back in the 80s. I lost half of my dance company on fame. My young men, I was in the hospital. I was pregnant with my baby and uh, I was in the hospital saying goodbye to my daughter, my uh, famed sons. And that's a painful thing to live with. But now there's so much help and there's so much possibility and people are living productive, healthy, normal lives that are infected with the virus. And people need to just remember that it's still out there. This is a battle that we haven't won yet. It's still a war. And women are high at risk. And so this concert tonight with Janet Jackson is to celebrate all the gains that we've made, all that we have uh, learned and all the medications and the new uh, ways of living. And also to celebrate those who have gone before us. We did one in the and uh, in New York one year, the Apollo, where we celebrated all the great, great dancers that have gone on uh, because of the AIDS virus and uh this is a tremendous undertaking and it's something's very serious, but joyful at the same time, because this is a celebration. This is a celebration because people can live now. They don't have to die. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's interesting because there was so, so much that was a, a huge dichotomy in the 1980s. Obviously we were all watching fame and enjoying you, uh, and, and learning about dance and like learning about the arts, but it was a time of, you know, I remember being in New York and you would see people walking down the street. It would almost like you're seeing people who you could see were dying in front of you. It was a frightening era and sort of a, a glorious era for the arts. We have come a long way, but I want to, you mentioned some of these statistics, although African-Americans, represent almost 13% of the U.S. population, African-Americans today still account for 42.1% of HIV infection cases in 2019. In 2020, African-Americans were 7.8 times more likely to be diagnosed with HIV infection as compared to the white population. Talk about how these disparities can still be happening when, as you said, we have so many drug therapies, so much that has uh, gotten better. Well, it says a lot about the bureaucracy that happens in our country, in the medical profession, in politics, what, what uh, areas and communities are important. And we just have to stand up and say it out loud. There are disparities. There were disparities with the COVID-19. There were disparities all over. So this is not something new to us, but it's something that we have to speak out about and have great awareness of, you know, this weekend, we're going to be celebrating Dionne Warwick at the Kennedy Center Honors. And she was one of the greatest advocates with that amazing song. That's what friends are for. She and all the yes. great legendary Elton John, the people that got together. But even when they raised millions of dollars, it was the black community that was not receiving the care that they needed. And Dion took many steps to change that. And the perception, yeah. the perception is a learned phenomenon. 
It's not something that is just a, this is what it, you see it and that's what it is. You know, the yeah. earth used to look flat to the world and it, we know that it's yep. round. So yeah. we have and to keep educated. That's why AIDS Healthcare Foundation is such an important organization and that we're having yeah. this great moment with Janet that we're talking with you right now. There's a cause yeah. for people's ears and eyes to be alert and looking and hearing this. Well, uh, I am alert and hearing and looking and uh, loving you, Ms. Debbie Allen. You are such a legend. And then you said Dion Warwick. I got goosebumps because legends, legends all. Debbie Allen, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being here with us tonight. Thank you for speaking with us and God bless the world. Thanks. And coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis may be regretting challenging California's Gavin Newsom to a live debate after the clobbering he took last night. But at least we got a heads up on the crucial poop map app. I'll explain next. Last night, Fox held a debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom, likely hoping that it would give DeSantis's flailing presidential campaign a much needed boost. But instead, it turned out to be a complete train wreck for the Florida governor that not even moderator Sean Hannity could save him from. The whole debate could be summed up by this one moment when DeSantis held up a poop map of San Francisco. Yes, you heard that right. A picture of poop. And believe it or not, it only went downhill from there. I'm the only guy here that's a border state governor. You're trolling folks and trying to find migrants to play political games, to try to get some news and attention so you can out Trump Trump. And by the way, how's that going for you, Ron? You're down 41 points in your own home state. And your immigration policy can best be described as a governor from the state of Florida going into another state, the state of Texas, lying to migrants, promising them jobs and housing, sending them to an island Martha's Vineyard, and then sending him to a parking lot in Sacramento, California. When are you going to drop out and at least give Nikki Haley a shot to take down Donald Trump in this nomination? She laid you out. You're a walking hypocrite. But there's one thing in closing that we have in common is neither of us will be the nominee for our party in 2024. Ouch. Joining me now is Fernand Avandi, Democratic pollster at MSNBC political analyst. Fernand, you've worked with far more political candidates than I have. I've done just two uh, little campaigns, uh, one not so little. Uh, but I would say that I could probably advise that maybe a thing you def- don't ever want to do is hold up a picture of poop and be photographed holding a picture of poop. I feel like that's probably decent advice. I'm not a strategist, though. What do you think? Look, I think that Ron DeSantis's campaign for President Joy is in such death throes and they're so desperate that they risked the humiliation last night of being facing off against one of the more talented spokespeople in the Democratic Party, Gavin Newsom, just to be talked about again, to try and build some conversation <laughs> around it. But that poop map prop, I think, felt flat. And by the end of the debate, I mean, DeSantis looked so punch drunk that Newsom kind of had him left like Ron the elf on the shelf. I mean, he didn't really have much to say. You could see that those hits left some mark and drew some blood. And it was a bad night for Team DeSantis on a week that looks like rock bottom for his presidential campaign, Joy. 
Yeah, and the, the, the sad thing about it is the poop also, in a way, could have also been pudding. And he also has an issue with pudding and eating it with his finger. So it's like, you don't want to be photographed next to anything that is either looking like poop or pudding. It's just not good for you. Um, and he, and Gavin Newsom wasn't wrong. Here's the polling. Donald Trump is at 61 in Florida. Ron DeSantis is at 20. Nikki Haley's at 9. Chris Christie's at 1. And then on top of that, his campaign is being described as a Washington Post piece. It describes it as a dumpster fire. Some senior campaign aides are increasingly gloomy about their chances, according to a person close to DeSantis. People increasingly think it's over a dumpster like even his own campaign is leaking that it's 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 poop that's exactly right i mean there is massive uh, turmoil from within joy they've now seen nikki haley pass them in the polling uh they've had if any kind of a polling bounce it's a dead cat bounce after the iowa governor <laughs> endorsed them there has been no effect really there for the DeSantis campaign and to also see uh, the Koch brother, the last living Koch brother, basically say, I'm going to go from DeSantis in 2018, the savior. I'm now all in on Nikki Haley. That was a brutal setback for them. I, I do want to point out something for Democrats watching. There was a tell last night that I think we all saw. I only wish Gavin Newsom had used it a little bit more. Anytime he used Trump's words to insult mm -hmm. DeSantis, uh, DeSantis had no response. You could tell that anytime he's using or someone uses Trump's words to go after him, it rattles him and mutes him. So I think that's something Democrats should think about going forward. Well, you know, let me you segue to Trump. Let me segue to him just for a moment, too, because we do know now there is some breaking news tonight. District Judge Chutkin, Tanya Chutkin, has denied two of Donald Trump's motions to dismiss his D.C. indictment. Let me just read you what he she wrote. Uh, the Constitution's text, structure and history do not support the contention that he should be immune from prosecution in his mind due to uh, double jeopardy, First Amendment and presidential immunity. She said, no, 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 uh, not on those grounds or any of in any other branch of government. Not a president has ever accepted it. And this court will not so hold. Whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. I wonder how it impacts someone like DeSantis, who's running away from Donald Trump as much as he's running against him, if Donald Trump's legal jeopardy gets deeper. Look, I, I, unfortunately, what we've seen, and this is what the, the radicalized MAGA base that is the cult of personality, today's Republican Party, Joy, they are not going to have Trump pay a political price in this Republican primary for further legal trouble. If anything, Trump is doubling and tripling down on all of these legal threats and all of these rulings that go against him to say that he's being martyred, he's being aggrieved by the justice system. I think to the extent that DeSantis has any prayer, it's that something happens to Trump. But also, he needs yeah. something to happen to Haley because he's falling into third. Yeah. Let, let me very quickly ask you, what in the hell is going on in Florida? Florida Republican Party Chair Kristen Ziegler is under criminal investigation for allegations related to sexual battery, including rape, according to a complaint filed by a Sarasota Police Department. Ziegler leads the statewide Republican Party. His wife, Bridget Ziegler, helped start Moms for Liberty. Uh, the Florida Trident is the organization that broke the story. Sources close to the investigation say the woman alleges she and the couple have been involved in a three-year-long consensual three-way sexual relationship. I'll note NBC News has not confirmed that. But he is the wife of the woman who's been leading the charge to get LGBTQ content out of Florida school books. And yet, at least according, and again, NBC News has not confirmed it, she's in a three-way, which means, you know, she's either B or Q. Well, it, it certainly means that kink is definitely nonpartisan. We've seen that over the millennia. I think it'll be the case going forward. But I think you point out the right question, Joy. We saw this actually asked here in Florida by Fabiola Santiago, who raises the question. How is it that the woman that is going after the gay community is able to have sex with another woman and that be okay? 
So it's flaming hypocrisy here. In fact, Governor DeSantis, I think just moments ago or hours ago, called for the resignation of, of Ziegler. So this is Florida flirting again when it comes to uh, what's <laughs> happening here. But it's a, certainly a problem for the Republican Party in a state where the hypocrisy is on display again for the nation. Oh, yeah. He's fine with her banning books. But, you know, if she's kinking around, then she got to go. Yeah, perfectly DeSantis. OK, Fernandez graciously stick, agreed to stick around because he's going to tell us who he thinks won the week. And he may even get the right answer. We'll see. After the break. All right, you know what time it is. It's time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes, who won the week? Back with me, Fernand Amandi. Fernand, who won the week? Joy, Rosalind Carter and Jimmy Carter, uh, one of the great couples in American history, reminding us what decency, what peace, what human rights, what mental health importance is, that focus, perhaps two of the greatest Americans in history, unquestionably for me, the winners of the week. Yeah, God bless them. What a wonderful, wonderful love story. All right, my pick. Robert De Niro. Play the tape. The beginning of my speech was edited, cut out. I didn't know about it. And I want to read it. History isn't history anymore. Truth is not truth. Even facts are being replaced by alternative facts and driven by conspiracy theories and ugliness. In Florida, young students are taught that slaves develop skills which could be applied for their personal benefit. The entertainment industry isn't immune to this festering disease. Don't mess with De Niro, Gotham Awards, and Apple. Boo. Not nice. Robert De Niro won the week, but also the Carters won the week. And I think my Santa also won the week. Thank you, Fernando Bondi, my friend. And that is tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.